Hi, I'm Noam Wasserman, Dean of the Sy Sim School of Business at Yeshiva University. I was a longtime professor at Harvard Business School, an entrepreneur, and a venture capitalist. I wrote the bestseller, The Founder's Dilemmas. And I'm Charlie Harari. I've been working with companies for over 10 years. And that book, Founder's Dilemmas, and the challenges faced by the 10,000 founders in it is the basis of this podcast. We are delving into the issues faced by startups to help you avoid the pitfalls that claim so many good companies. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody. This is actually a special episode. You know, every podcast, we end by asking you to send in questions. You can, anytime, foundersdilemmaspodcast at gmail.com. And so now what we did was we took the top five, and we're going to answer them. So I'm here with Dean Wasserman. So, Dean, we got some questions. Why don't you read the first one, and we'll tackle it. Absolutely. Thank you, Eliana, for submitting this one. Uh, This is going back to pre-founding, if you will, preparing yourself to found. Uh, You can always take steps to increase preparedness before beginning a business. At what point should you take the leap of faith and found your company? Good question. Indeed. Uh, One of the things that we had talked about, one in the the extreme, that is what we had focused on in the Preparing Yourself to Found episode, um, is the founder who leaps when the circumstances are not favorable, um, when it is not good business circumstances, when it is not good uh, career circumstances, or when it's not good personal circumstances. Um, and yet, it's often because passion is clouding his or her judgment about those circumstances. Uh, what Eliana is asking about is the other end of the extreme, if you will, um, a person who waits for the perfect circumstances, which likely will never come. Right. If you're waiting for check, check, check across all three of them, you're waiting for the, the perfect, what I refer to as the bullseye, um, uh, the bullseye oftentimes is never going to it never be comes. hit. There's no such thing. And unfortunately, then that person is going to get to the end of his or her career and regret that you didn't go and push yourself to change the world by leaping into the unknown, uh, by being able to uh, have ways that you can impact beyond when you're uh, working for someone else. And uh, one of the key things is to be able to assess ahead of time my three circumstances. Where do I have holes, as we had talked about during that mm-hmm. episode? Do your best that you can to be able to stack the deck in your favor when it comes to all three of them. Fill in your holes when it comes to the skills that you need. Um, When it comes to your network, be able to build those Mm -hmm. pre-founding. Being able to really test the market and see, is it all my passion or are there real signals that I'm getting in a true way from the people who might buy my minimum viable product, my MVP. Um, On the personal side, save up to be able to increase the chances. And then be able to also understand two things. One, which of these three is the real most important one for me? If I really need the personal to be rock solid, so I'm not going to imperil anything there, and then maybe I can give up with a little bit of having 75% of the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, then being able to understand your priorities and your risk tolerance um, is one of the key things for you to be able to assess about yourself. Um, and then being able to see if you have been able to use your time in the best way of increasing the chances of you're getting to that point. Um, uh, what is my risk tolerance for being able to leap in now that I put a cash cushion under me that I've been able to you know, have all these other things, even if it's not the bullseye, that I've been able to increase the chances that I'm going to be able to succeed at doing this. And so that's one of the key things in terms of leap of faith, founding your company. If you've done your diligence, if you understand yourself, you've been able to get the three circumstances to within striking distance of saying, yes, I've done everything that I can and I can stomach making that leap. Then that is the point at which to go rather than waiting and having the regret because you never get to the bullseye. Is there a, is there a, a rule or heart, like a, 
um, any sort of minimum that you've heard of in terms of how many months or years someone should have cash flow for. Someone's jumping out. Um, you know, you need enough cash to be able to pay your bills and more, whatever. Is there a rule that you've seen that says you need two years? You need a year and a half, like to give yourself the right runway. So this is going to be something that's very specific to you. Right. Um, one of the key things is how much of so within startups we talk about the burn rate. How much money are they are they spending each month? Right. How much cash are they burning? Well, your personal burn rate. Yep. If you have taken on a very high personal burn rate before founding, you have a mortgage to pay for, you have kids' tuition, you have uh, the nanny that is going to be able to help at home and things like that, you've taken on a very high level of commitments to it, and then you're going to need a much longer runway to be able to make sure that you can burn the personal burn rate, that it's not going to burn through all your cash a lot quicker. If you've been able to live like a founder for longer, you've been able to keep the belt tight, you've been able to have variable expensive instead of uh, fixed expenses and other things like that that, then you're going to be able to reja- react a lot better um, to a lot of the uh, the delays that you can expect, a lot of the things that are going to cause possibly other challenges for the other person um, when they go without a paycheck for longer and things like that. So yeah. in some ways, very specific to you, your circumstances, yeah. uh, being able to project it out and also your tolerance and also your family's tolerance, that, you know, your husband's level. tolerance for being able to go with, uh, uh, we're all on his paycheck, you know, right. other things like that Health that are going to affect it. Right, exactly. You know, one of the things that we talk a lot about on the podcast is, the, is this commitment to truth. Um, and in almost every podcast, there's, I know, almost at every episode, there's some moment where we say, write something down, right? Whether it's the money and the finances or the founders or the, and to me, I find this is a, a big piece as well to founders where people make decisions without the information. And so people will not really know how much money they spend a month. And so they'll make a decision about what to do without fully understanding that I actually spend this a month. So I need this much money to give me this, to give me a year, let's say. And on the flip side, they assume they spend sometimes more than they think, right? They just know that they made money and they got a paycheck and there's nothing left. And they don't break it down to go, I really could live without this. We really could do this. We can really adjust here. And so, A lot of times when you're making decisions to leave jobs, to start new jobs, to start companies, if you don't have the diligence in terms of how much money you're making and how much money you need, your own personal burn rate, you won't know either to go or not to go. It can cut against you. Yeah, well, one of the things that you're talking about is the scenario of I've taken on a high personal burn rate now. How do I cut it back? Right. It's far easier to not take on the high personal burn rate to begin with. For sure. To be a lot more adept at being able to live on a smaller amount of money and socking away the extra for yourself. And so two ways that if you've already gone down that path of taking it on, how do I undo it? Far better to be able to do it from right from the beginning. So let me ask you a question. Um, Company has um, a founder started it on his own. Uh, grew grew the company to a pretty si- large size. Now is saying I need a partner. I need a thought partner. And the, the people in my world, that you know, wherever world he comes from, doesn't provide that. Um, do you suggest a person like this go out and try to find someone? They're usually per, per, per people that have this level of experience and want to take this level of ownership are not going to come to a company without some level of equity. Here's a solopreneur that did this all on his own, can't reach the next level without people at his level. What kind of equity should he be thinking about to give up? What would be appropriate for somebody who is mid-stage in a company to give up to a, a, an incoming partner? Um, is he looking for a partner? Should he be looking for a chairman? How, how would you go about advising someone like this? 
So lots of interacting factors that we can be thinking about here. First off is the question of whether equity is appropriate to be giving to the person. You want to have the long-term players in the company whose decisions and actions, the execution side of what they control, is going to add value to the company. Those should be the people holding the equity. Right. Um, if you have someone who is not in that category holding equity, that is dead equity. That is not anything that they can move the needle, that they're going to be able to. It's actually a negative that they are holding the equity because you should free it up to be able to reallocate it to the person who's going to be able to be the active builder on it. So first of the steps along the way, if this is a brand new person that your founder is dealing with, where I don't know if I'm compatible with that person. I don't know if we're going to be able to have similar working styles, have similar values, but have complementary different skills and things that we're bringing to it then there's a big uncertainty that you have of handing that person equity, and that might become debt equity if that person drops out of the company and you know, right. a bunch of the other things that go into it. And so a first thing on the way to that is being able to date that person first. Right. Being able to see the compatibility. To me, ideally, it's not a make-work kind of a project. It's something that will help the venture be able to push forward. Find some... Uh, compartmentalized project right. that pushes the venture forward that you can work on together, be able to really see in the trenches, are we going to be able to be complementary? Is he bringing the same exact things to the venture as I am? Then we're redundant, and it's also going to lead to stepping on each other's toes and other things that we covered when we're talking about the roles when you're too similar to each other and things like that. Right. Um, is it possible that um, this person is going to have all sorts of things that you'll regret and you gave over the equity and now it's really hard to hit the undo key on being able to do that. So it's one of the first principles of being able to wade into the waters rather than right. diving right into the pool. Um, and then there's also some of the fundamentals when we talked about the rewards. Even when it's a hire rather than a co-founder, there should still be some kind of dynamism. There's still some uncertainties about right. the contributions, the long-term way in which this person's engaged in the venture or not. Have the dynamic methods that we talked about in that be applied also to the hires that you're bringing on board. They should be having what is the life of your being able to create value in the venture. That's going to be the amount of time over which you're going to earn the equity stake, the carrot that I'm giving you. And so between the dating and the dynamism, those are the two Ds that you can go and bring to uh, the hires that you want to be able to bring to that. Um, there's one of my uh, alumni, um, Yanone Weiss, who um, very successful. Uh, what he talks about is not being able to find anyone who is higher than 70% on his founder index. This is wanting someone who's going to have the founder passion, who's going to be able to bring you know, the things that he brings to it. He can't find someone who's even close to that. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at hires, you have to be able to reset your sights on when you're talking about a thought partner. It sounds like this person is aspiring to have a co-founder that's yeah. going to come later in this. Being able to reset that expectation about that person's not going to be more than 70% or so of it. And now, given that, that I'm not going to have this overly rosy picture about when he's in the trenches, that he's going to be there 24-6 with me and other things like that. Another one of the things to be able to reset in terms of the rosy view of the world. Another one of the things when you're talking about a thought partner is there's other things besides a full partner that you can be able to bring on board for that. If this is someone that you might be able to get someone senior to give you two hours a week, and be able to toss at that person in your domain of expertise. Here are the things that I'm grappling with. Please be the connecto to my Azer, the pushback mm -hmm. that's going to be able to help me on it. Um, being able to have that kind of a person rather than 100% full-time co-founder just to be able to have that pushback. Um, think about other options besides the full-time uh, partner that you're going to bring on board of ways that you can get the same kind of thing that you need, but in a more efficient and effective way sure. because you're going to have other options. Excellent. Excellent. Next question. OK, 
Okay, next question is, uh, do you think it's better to have a solo founder or three co-founders? Mm. So it we had depends. talked. To, it depends. So uh, we had talked lots of things. All of these Rich, depends. Richer King. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> applying something that's going to be coming up soon. I, I see that Charlie's even <laughs> familiar with one of the key frameworks we're going to be getting into. Um, but uh, we had talked during our roles and decision-making uh, episode about the perils of the two founders. Yep. Uh, the one-on-one the gridlock, the tensions that come from not being able to agree on it. And so I assume that's where this question is coming from, uh, about if we take two off the table, what is the next best thing in terms of uh, having just one founder or having three co-founders? Mm-hmm. Uh, presumably, that's where you can use a two-to-one vote to be able to get past the gridlock. Um, what the data show is that, on average, um, solo founders perform worse than the founding teams, than when mm-hmm. you have multiple people who are there, um, but with a higher variance. And so with a solo founder, you could have much worse performance, or you can actually have them performing at about the level of what a standard founding team would be able to do. Wow. And to me, what separates the two of those is a bit of the self-awareness that we've talked about and also the checklist that we've talked about. So having a solo founder who is well-suited to solo found and is being able to choose that in the most conscious way. They prepared themselves to be able to check off all the key boxes themselves. Um, They are much more self-aware about along the way, knowing where they have a hole and then being able to plug it. Um, Then that solo founder is actually one of the ones who's gonna be able to perform quite well Mm -hmm. as a solo founder. Mm -hmm. They have thoughtfully been able to enter into solo founding uh, and not been having the overconfidence lead them into leaving holes in the team and other things like that. Um, And then the right person solo founding at the right point in the right way is able to perform pretty well. If you succumb to the biases that we've talked about on a recurring basis, the overconfidence and the only looking at the rosy and not understanding the pitfalls and other things like that, those are the solo founders who crater, who end up with a much worse performance because they're not doing it in the right way at the right time with the right person. And so that's where you have to think about your awareness of, do I need someone else on board? And if so, um, then I should be able to go out and get... Uh, hopefully the founders who are complementary to me will plug my holes, be able to bring those things. And then a a three-person founding team can be a better one than the solo founder who doesn't make those kind of decisions well. Question four, what is your opinion on employee equity? As employees start to rise the ranks, as you want to reward employees, um, what's an appropriate amount of equity typically to give to an employee? I know it's going to vary by size and and but just to create some some direction, right? To get employees to feel invested in the company, to reward certain employees as they get promoted through the company. Many times founders are solopreneurs. Now they grow large companies and their top executives need more than just a salary and a bonus. And they may even want to incentivize large groups of, of their employees to be part of some kind of employee pool. So understand that it's going to be, it's going to be based on size and, and is there some kind of direction that a founder could take to figure out how much of the equity he should share with the employee base yeah so this is going to be going back to the fundamentals and the recurring themes that we have of understanding what are the key things that we need to be able to do well and be able to have that list of them and then being able to allocate how valuable are each of these right 
And when you take a look, for instance, you could go and separate out into two buckets. This is what the co-founders are able to bring to the venture. And now this is how much that is worth compared to all the value that we are creating. And now the things that are left, this hires bucket, what is the value that they're going to be bringing to the venture if they're able to perform and fill in our holes, mm -hmm. the unchecked boxes there. Um, and that gives you broadly how much should the employee uh, pool be. Mm -hmm. um, and then from that, you can get into now allocating within it for each of the things that each of them is doing, uh, what is the way in which it is adding value to the venture and trying to be able to tie it to that. Um, broadly speaking, within the ventures that I have the data on, um, those being the tech ventures, the life, uh, life sciences ventures within the US, um, on average, each round of financing that they raise, um, they that when we take a look at say the first one, they usually set aside on average about 18% of the equity for an employee pool. Wow. Being able to have that That's amount that is set aside uh, for that. And then depending on how well they filled their holes, like the next round of it, depending on you know, when they're going and budgeting for how much are we going to have to offer to hires to be able to bring them on or to the existing people to retain them, being able to um, give them additional amounts as they've scaled with the venture and they're continuing to do it. Then it's a smaller pool because they've already taken a look at uh, several of the checkboxes and been able to allocate the equity in the earlier mm -hmm. round. Um, but that 18% and then maintaining over time how you can be able to have the people who are adding value from the non-founding team. Right. It's how they think about that. What does a founder typically take after two or three rounds? What's left for a founder? So, great. Let me go to some of the data from uh, from the founder's dilemmas. I actually brought this along in case it was uh, coming up. Um, in terms of the amount that the founders own, this is, again, within the life sciences and the, uh, the tech startups, um, the first round of financing, um, the founders at... Before it, the founders own everything except for what they've given to the hires. After that first round of financing, the current founders and employees own only 41% wow. of the company. And so they've already gone below half of it it's in order tremendous. to raise yeah. that first round of financing. It goes to one of the things that you were talking about uh, earlier about the early round, you a lot of times are at the mercy sure. of the investors. You're going to have to take their terms. You haven't put the points on the board as much as if you were able to wait and uh, be able to hit other milestones and other things like that. Um, the second round of financing, they're down to 30%. Wow. Um, the third round of financing is down to 22%. And so that's where you have the overtime inviting in some of the things that uh, we'll be talking about in a future episode about when you're bringing in the other resources, you have to give up something to be able to get them. And a lot of times it will be ownership. A lot of times it will be decision-making control that sure. you'll have around it. Uh, we'll get into in a future episode around what are the percentages of the founders who are still able to remain CEO after each of these rounds of financing. Powerful effect that each round of financing that you raise is in an increased chance that you're going to have to give up the CEO position as the founder. Wow. And so all of these things entering in, those are what broadly in those ventures, um, that's how much they own. Last question you have uh, that you get in. Okay, so thank you uh, for submitting this one. Um, this, I think, was coming off of our relationships episode. Uh, we were talking about the different types of prior relationships that you're leveraging. Um, it's asking about coworkers as friends. Hmm. When is it productive and beneficial and when is it detrimental? Hmm. So in that episode, we had talked about the stability of the founding team, how it differs, friends and family, 
versus the uh, the people you barely know, the acquaintances and strangers, um, and then versus also the coworkers who you are going and co-founding with. Uh, the most common of the profiles that people tap in terms of being able to find the the co co-founders that they have. Uh, lots of rich stuff around the data. Go back and listen to that episode to have a bunch of the the details around it. Uh, but this is asking about, in some ways, a hybrid of what happens. You have coworkers and you have friends. Friends was actually least stable. Coworkers was most stable. What about this type of a, a mix there? Um, uh, you have to separate out two things that are going to be related to some of the things that we talked about in that podcast, but we can build on it. Um, the starting point for your relationship and how that affects the difficult conversations you're going to be able to have, the baggage that you have about over-assuming trust is there, and a bunch of the other things that enter in. And when you are starting as – there's two ending points that differ. There's an ending point that has two very different paths that you take to it co-founders, co-workers as friends, if you started off as co-workers, you built a professional relationship and then you became friendly, that's very different than we started off as best friends and then we were architecting a for professional sure. relationship and, on top of it. And go for those that are hearing this for the first time, go back to our earlier episodes. I think it's two or three that we, we hit this pretty hard and it's incredibly important distinction there as to what came first. Exactly. Even though right now... They look the same. Coworkers yeah. who are friends. Big time. The path that you took to there is going to lead to more baggage you have to undo. Big time. Um, a stronger ability to be able to have the difficult conversations yeah. and other things like that. So much so that if you're really close friends now, we one would think let's be coworkers. But what you're what we spoke about in that episode that you know proceed with you know at with caution because it's it's complicated. Exactly. And so being able to diagnose which of these buckets that you know, fit into this will help you be able to see where are there some latent problems that maybe we cause for ourselves or where are we set up to right. be able to have much right. stronger ability to be able to deal with the unexpected here. Um, an interesting subset of it um, is actually classmates. Mm. Which does classmates fit into? Sure. Is it coworkers or is it friends? Um, and... Uh, there are elements of both, sure. but also where what you do with your classmates is going to affect it. If you are coming together in a class, you're being assigned to work with someone on a team, you work on a project together that's a substantive one, then it's more that you are coworkers and then you might be able to become friendly over time. Mm -hmm. If you were high school buddies and now you have to find that you're in the same college together and now you're in a class and you say, hey, let's do it together. You're actually going to be a lot more of the echoes of the problems of friends that you're right. going to be bringing to that project. Yeah. Um, in some ways, college, going back to the dating metaphor, is a great way to be able to date co-founders, yep. um, be able to see whether we're compatible and other things like that. But if you're coming at it from the friend direction and then having to work against the baggage that that's causing, it's a very different one yeah. compared to we are being tossed into something as co-workers as, you know, on this project that we're doing as classmates. And then you're going to be able to learn some very different things about yourselves compared to uh, all the problems that the friend's baggage cause. Right. And and, 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 I, and I think what you're saying, which is exactly right, I mean, just to, to maybe add a different spin, which is you're, this is a puzzle piece, right? A company is a puzzle, and you need to put two pieces together. And those are different skills, different traits, different desires. If someone's your friend, you are, you are you have a higher level of bias to overlook the need for the puzzle. So you got to be really careful. If someone's not your friend, you are probably more likely to be thinking – do we fit together to have to, to push this venture forward? The minute you're related to them or you know them personally, you want this to work to, to hang out with them. If this is what's causing you to make get to go into business together, I have a bit of advice for you. Don't 
and just make an appointment. You know, go out with them every single Monday night because you'll probably have a better relationship in the future if you just make time to hang out with them than to force them into a company that they don't fit into and then spending all day with them. So remember that the goal is the company for it to be successful. And if it happens to be that you're friends with the person who is your complement and it works, God bless you. Thank God twice. But never replace the need to figure out the complementary skills to get something done with, I want to spend time with somebody. There's plenty of time you can spend with somebody if you have the right people working for you in your business. So your puzzle piece metaphor actually brought to mind an image. Uh, when I did a piece on uh, those types of topics for Harvard Business Review, um, they had put together one of the pictures that they had in the article there. I don't think that they were thinking this deeply about it, that they intentionally did this, but it was a couplepreneur, so a couple that are working together, facing each other with their briefcases as puzzle pieces. Oh, wow. And what you only notice if you look really closely at it is that the two puzzle pieces, when they were facing each other, didn't fit together. Great. It was only if they were back to back Great. that they were like walking away from each other that Great. the puzzle pieces would, would be a, fitting together. And so fits in exactly being able to judge, being able to have the awareness of am I blundering into something that is going to be incompatible and fooling myself into thinking there's going to be a glorious couplepreneur team that we're going to be able to be creating together? Or can I think much more deeply about the puzzle pieces and that they don't fit? Exactly. Well, thank you again for those, those questions. For those that are listening and want to send us questions, please do it at foundersdilemmaspodcast at gmail.com. Foundersdilemmaspodcast at gmail.com. You can check us out on all the platforms. And we look forward to seeing you next time, both on our usual episodes and on the Q&A. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being in touch. Mm-hmm.